following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The frog will be shocked and will jump out, so they say. If any of the pot was hot enough, I think the frog would be over. But uh, for the sake of the illustration, the frog could jump out. But if you put the frog in a pot of lukewarm water and slowly turn up the heat so that it gradually changes over time, that the frog is unaware of what's happening. And every day the increase in temperature just becomes a new norm until pretty soon it's too late and he can't escape, right? I just wonder if that's kind of a picture of how life has become for us in kind of the modern world, that um, things have changed around us, but it's been a gradual day-by-day change, and we haven't realized the cataclysmic changes that have taken place in us and around us, um, and we're like that frog about to boil ourselves to death. Uh, and, and, and the changes I'm, I'm thinking of and I'm picturing are just, just the, the crush of, of what the Internet and digital and media and devices have, have, have created in our life. Uh, and for those of us who are old enough to remember life before, you know, we can actually compare. The thing is, for most people, 20, 25 and under, they don't even know any other life, right? This has been their norm from birth. But for some of us, it's a very different normal. And uh, we, can, uh, we can remember back to a time before there was all this technology, before uh, we were um, so available, Right? And that's one of the things that the technology is great stuff. And I'm not preaching against iPhones and devices and computers and email uh, too much. <laughs> um, but, but, but just think about how it's changed life for us. Uh, for those of you who are old like me, you can remember back to the day when if somebody wanted to call you on the phone, they would call a phone that was actually attached to a wall somewhere. Can you believe that? And it was attached to a wall because it needed to be there, right? And so the way it worked back in those days is if people wanted to call you, you either had to be like at home or at work, right? And if you weren't at home, the phone would just ring and ring and ring, and guess what? You wouldn't answer it. Like, this is mind-boggling, right? And so what happened is, and for some of you who are young, I know this is going to sound really weird, but we had these things called answering machines. And what it would do is it would answer the phone for you. It would ring, and you weren't there to pick it up, and the little button would click on, and it would say, you have reached the home of Tim and Denise Dunham. If you would like, please leave a message after the beep. And you could do that, right? And, and of course, for some of us, uh, it was a way that we could find out if people called us when we weren't available. But then, but then for some of us, it became a way just to avoid the phone altogether. So, like, even if we were home, you still just let the answering machine answer, right? Um, but what, what's life like now? Well, the reality is that we have created a world for ourselves where anybody at any time from anywhere in the world can contact us, right? And likewise, we can contact and we can communicate anytime, anywhere, uh, with anybody in the world in an instant, right? And not only with just one person, we can even do this with groups. I mean, I've done group chats with people on several continents all at once. It's remarkable, really. But it's also created a, a, a reality where there's no more answering machine, right? And people are not okay with you not answering your phone, right? How many of you call somebody and they didn't answer and you're like, I know they got their phone, why aren't they not answering, right? They're ignoring me, right? And it's just not okay now to not answer because the expectation is that, no, you're, you've got your phone, you, I know it's ringing, I know you know I'm calling you, why are you ignoring me? And so we, we do answer the phone, and we respond to the chat, and we answer those messages, those emails. Uh, so, so it's created for us a, a life and a world where I don't even know if we realize how distracted we've become by all of this. Right? The numbers are staggering, and I don't know this, these are numbers of averages based mostly in the United States. May not be true of this group as a whole, but just listen to these numbers, okay? Um, a recent study, uh, 2018, so this is, this is now time, okay, this was this done this year, um, showed that American adults spend more than 11 hours per day watching, reading, listening to, or simply interacting with media. 
11 hours a day, right? But what's most staggering about that is that's up uh, uh, from 9 hours and 32 minutes, so up by two and a half hours just over four years earlier. And so on average, people are watching and listening and connecting with their media two and a half, time, uh, two and a half hours more per day on average. This is average than they were just four years ago. Right? Um, and it's not, it's not better with, with our kids. In fact, it's, it's worse. Um, Common Sense Media, who kind of studies the uh, effects of Internet on kids and families, did a survey in 2015. So these are like old, outdated numbers now. But in 2015, found that uh, tweens, preteens, spent 4.5 hours on screen media on average every day, and teenagers spent 6.5 hours uh, on media every day. So 4.5 and 6.5 in 2015. They did the same exact study one, just one year later, and those numbers jumped up to, for children 8 to 18, jumped up to um, over 9 hours per day right, in just one year. So the reality is that um, we, we, we are spending a good chunk of our life uh, staring at these screens, engaged in these devices. Um, and the reality is other studies have shown that while adults may be spending an average of 11 hours per day on their digital device, devices, meaning 11 hours of their day, they're somehow engaged with, with media or a device. But the reality is if you take the actual devices and you log all the time that they are on those devices, then it actually comes up to about 13 or 14 hours a day because we're on multiple devices all at the same time, right? So uh, somebody's sitting watching a movie on TV while they're checking their email on their computer while at the same time they're messaging with a friend on their iPhone and browsing YouTube on their iPad, Okay, raise your hand if that is you. I'm not going to name names, right? Um, so that's just the world we live in. And, and there's some cool things about it. There's some amazing things that we can do that are impressive. But the result of all this is that we have become incredibly distracted people, right? Incredibly distracted. Uh, and this is the new norm for us. The new norm is that our phone and our messages are constantly going off and we are expected to constantly be engaging with them, answering them, responding, right? Um, no more answering machine, right? Um, and, and, and just another go back to the day, you know, back in the, old, the olden days with the horse-drawn carriage and a thing called real snail mail, Right? Back, there was a time, I know some of you can't even imagine this, but there was a time when if you wanted to send a message to somebody, you actually had to get paper and a pen and write the message out with your hand in ink and put it in an envelope and put an address. And your parents can explain to you what an envelope is. Uh, put an address on it and a stamp. They could explain the stamp too. And uh, you put it in a box called a mailbox, which was not on your computer actually. It was a real-life, like, tin can with a lid that you would put mail in. And so this little guy with the funny hat would come pick it up, and he would deliver it to your friend. It would take days. And then that person would go to their little mailbox, which was an actual tin can, and they'd pull out the envelope with the stamp on it. And you can look it up on Wikipedia and find out what that is. And they would, at their own leisure, when it was convenient for them, when it wasn't an interruption in their life, they would sit down and read the letter. Uh, but what happens now is that we are constantly interrupted, right? And the expectation is that I got that email and I have to respond now. I got that message and I've got to answer right now. That phone's ringing and you better answer it right now. So we're constantly being interrupted. Here's how much. Another study. This, is, this to me is fascinating. From the Washington Post, researchers at the University of California, Irvine, found after careful observation that the typical office worker is interrupted or switches tasks on average of every three minutes and five seconds. Right? Average office worker is interrupted or switches tax, tasks every three minutes and five seconds. Like that's ten times, I mean that's three times for every ten minutes. Right? And they said what's even more remarkable is that it takes, once they are interrupted, it takes on average 23 minutes and 15 seconds just to get back to where they left off. And the net effect of this, they said that... Um, uh, a guy who wrote a book, Jonathan Spear, wrote a book, Overload, How Too Much Information is Hazardous to Your Organization, estimates that interruptions and information overload eat up 28 billion wasted hours a year in the U.S. labor force at a loss of almost $1 trillion to the U.S. economy. 
right? So that's the kind of the world we live in, right? Where people are being interrupted every three minutes, right, on average. Now, you may only be interrupted every five minutes or every eight minutes, right? But this is the world we live in and the, the reality. And so we are distracted, right? We are becoming more and more as a society, and the, the, the pot of water is boiling hotter and hotter. We don't realize, and I think a lot of times we're just oblivious, to how life has changed and how it used to be we were not this distracted, right? Well, life used to work much differently. Um, as Winston Churchill, a famous quote long before the internet, but he said, uh, don't interrupt me while I'm interrupting. <laughs> um, maybe we should say, don't interrupt me while I'm being interrupted by my interruptions. Because that's kind of how distracted our lives have become. And of course, not only does this kind of interruptions and distractions cost us in our jobs and in our, our productivity and in, in money, but more significantly, it, it impacts our relationships. Right? Ironically, the main advantage or the main gain that we've gotten over our phones and over all this technology is the ability to communicate. Really, that's what's at the heart of most of it, is it is increasing our ability to connect and engage and communicate and be communicated with. Um, but ironically, all of this possible and immediate communication has not brought us closer together or created deeper, more meaningful personal relationships. Instead, research is showing more and more that it's making us very shallow and making it difficult for us to carry on anything other than trivial relationships. Right? It's like the extent of our relationship and conversation has been, re has been reduced to stickers and emoticons. Right? As powerful and engaging as those are, um, and Ryan Hanna especially loves them, a joke with our elders, um, uh, like, like, this has become how we communicate, like, right? Uh, we may be friends with 1,572 people on Facebook, but now we don't know how to have a deep and meaningful conversation with one person. And uh, this is especially true of, of our youth and, and kids who are just constantly um, bombarded and, and are, are losing the capacity. Research is showing this. They're losing the capacity to interact face-to-face -face with people. In fact, uh, studies are showing that more and more kids now will be sitting in the exact same room with each other chatting because they don't know how to have a ver verbal, visual, face-to-face -face relationship. Right? So, so this is the, the new reality we live in. Uh, distracted, broken. And if this affects our relationships with each other, the real question I want to talk about today and this next couple of weeks is how does it affect our relationship with God? Does all this constant state of being distracted and interrupted impact or affect our relationship with God? Well, how can it not? Right? How can it not? If, it, if it's wrecking our relationships with real-life people who are here in the room with us, how can it not impact our relationship with God? Uh, and, and the reality is that the shallowness and trivial uh, relationships that we've come to accept as part of human relationships is quickly becoming the norm in people's relationship with God. And if you don't believe that, if you want proof, just read kind of the, the latest blog uh, on Christian spirituality and compare it to with what people wrote 200 years ago. Right? And, and, and tell me we're not becoming trivial and shallow and even meaningless in our discussion even about God. Right? Um, so what I want to do is talk about how do we battle against this? What can we do to uh, uh, become less distracted so that we can have better relationships, be more productive, but most importantly, how we can uh, have the kind of relationship with God that is vital if we're to be growing and maturing in Christ and being the people who are being shaped by his word and by relationship with him. So to do that, we're going to look this morning at... Uh, 1 Timothy 4, primarily verses 7 and 8, but let me read verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. I think I have the scripture, maybe, maybe not. Um, Paul writes to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in, uh, in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Um, Paul here is encouraging Timothy to... Um, to train himself for godliness. And that's kind of my theme topic for the, this message. Train ourselves for godliness. Although actually, uh, I think my title is Train Ourselves for S- to Be Still. And we'll see where I come up with that. But he starts off by telling Timothy to train himself for godliness. And uh, he starts off with an interesting phrase. He says uh, in verse 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. Uh, the phrase there, silly uh, myths, in the Greek, I love this, is literally old wives' tales. He says, have nothing to do with old wives' tales. I think somehow that's probably politically incorrect nowadays or something. I don't know. Uh, I, can't, I don't know if you can say that. But the idea was that, like, back in the day, um, grandmas oftentimes would tell their grandchildren's stories, right? Uh, and things like nursery rhymes and fairy tales and other myths, Right? And Paul's using that as, a, as an analogy or an illustration of false teachers who were telling stories, telling what they called truth that was nothing more than like nursery rhymes, fairy tales. It was false. There was no substance or truth to it. And so uh, Paul's telling Timothy to avoid people like that. And he talks in the first five verses about what some of those things are. He says people who are teaching that we should uh, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. And what was happening in the early church, these false teachers were going around spreading these, these, these fables, these, these uh, things that were contrary to the truth of, of the gospel and of solid doctrine. And uh, as they taught these things, they were distracting to the church, right? Different kind of distracting than what we have, but they were being distracted by these false ideas and, and, and false teachers. Uh, and so uh, Paul warns Timothy, the way to deal with these distractions is to train yourself in godliness. And the word train here has, uh, is the word in Greek that we get the word gymnasium from. And it has the idea of, uh, of going to the gym and working out. An athlete who's exercising, who's training for some athletic event. Maybe he's a runner, he's a discus thrower or something, right? And he goes to the gym and he's training, he's working out uh, he's training his body to prepare for his event. So that when the day of testing, when the event comes and he's put, on the te- uh, put to the test in his event, he can be victorious. And that's really what the word here, here means. It's an idea of working ourselves out spiritually, of uh, training. And what's interesting with this word is uh, the training that the athlete does in the gym is not the same thing as running the event. Right? They're two separate things. What you do in the gym is to strengthen yourself and prepare yourself so that when you go out to run the marathon or whatever, you are, you are conditioned, you're prepared, you're ready. But the training is not the event itself, right? They don't train just to train. They train to do well in the event, the test, to be victorious. And they're two separate things. And so he's talking to Timothy here about training, about training himself spiritually um, uh, and, and through, through discipline and through working himself out. Uh, working out spiritually. Uh, and the goal of all this, he says, train yourself for godliness. So again, he's not training to train. He's not saying train yourself so that you can be well-trained. Right? No, he says train yourself with the goal of becoming godly. And so the goal, the, the purpose, the, the event that, that he wants Timothy to be successful and victorious in is living a godly life. What is meant by godly? Well, the word in, in Greek here, again, it, it doesn't mean God-like, but it means somebody who lives a very pious life. In other words, they have a lifestyle that is consistent with the character and will of God. Right? They know what, would, what, what God desires, what, what would be pleasing to Him, and they live out those things. Right? They, they do the right thing. They live life well according to God's plan and God's will. So other, other scriptures or other verses would help us maybe clarify what godliness is. In Hebrews uh, 6.1, we just went through Hebrews and we looked at this verse often. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Right? Godliness is a life of maturity, of somebody who's grown in Christ so that their life is, is godly. Right? They've embraced the full truth of the gospel in a way that's changed them. Um, 
Another passage that could describe this is, is the life of abiding in Christ. John 15:5 says, I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's a picture of godliness, a life that is bearing fruit. Now, of course, we oftentimes read this passage wrong. What we read it, and for a long time I read it this way, go out and bear fruit. And I would go out and I would try to bear fruit. Uh, but guess what? In the passage, Jesus does not command us to bear fruit. And in fact, it is impossible for us to bear fruit in our own strength. Fruit is something that only God can produce in us. Right? And that's where the, the training and the event are kind of separate, right? Um, the training is the part we do. And in this context, the training is not bearing fruit, but it's abiding. It's training, exercising ourselves in a way that we know how to live in Christ and close to him. Live relationship uh, as close as possible with Jesus. And when we do that, when we train ourselves to walk and live life in Jesus' presence and with him and close to him, drawing on the resources of his power and grace, the result that comes out of that is a life that produces fruit. So the godliness or the the fruit-bearing life is the consequence of, But the training is the part that we do to uh, receive God's help, to put ourselves in a place where it's possible for God to do that work in us. Um, Another example, probably the best picture of this, well, let me get two. Uh, Romans 12, two, real quickly. The idea of transformation. Godliness is a life that's being changed or transformed into the likeness of Christ. So Paul writes in Romans 12, two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by the testing, and I like that word testing because that's, that's the event, right? The event is the test. That by testing, you may discern or prove what the will of God is, what's the right thing to do, what is good and acceptable and pleasing to God. Uh, this idea of being transformed again, he doesn't say go out and transform yourself. He says be transformed. It's something that happens to us. And it just happens to be that God is the one and the only one who can transform us, who can change us. But there's something we're to do, right? We don't just sit back passively and go kind of to the beach and lay out in the sun and say, okay, God, I'm ready. You just zap me. Just transform me. Right? No, it doesn't work that way. We're to do what? Well, we're to be renewing our mind. Right? That's our part. That's the exercise part, the training part. Renewing our mind. Changing the way we think about things and filling our mind with the truth of Scripture so that it so that God then has the, the power and the, the, the freedom to transform us. Uh, maybe it's most clearly seen in Philippians 2, uh, 12 through 13, where Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed me, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, I'll tell you what's fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is preaching on this, this, this verse. Work out your own salvation, right? That's fear and trembling. Because, um, like, how are we saved? Do we save ourselves? Is there anything we can possibly do to save ourselves? Well, the clear teaching of the gospel is that, no, salvation is beyond us. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save ourselves. So what in the world does he mean when he says, work out your own salvation? Uh, well, that throws people into all kinds of interesting loops. And, uh, but notice what he says in, in the next verse. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, you know, maybe we're reading this word, work out your salvation, in the wrong way. I usually read the word, work out your salvation, to mean something like, uh, you know, solve it, work it out. Like your salvation's there, but you got to kind of like work out the problem of your salvation. But what if he really means here, work it out like as an exercise, like work out your salvation, like you're saved. Now put it to work by practicing, by training it, by exercising it, right? Because it is God who is working in you to save you. It is, and the work that he has done is to both put in you his will there is the desire to do what pleases him, and the working of it, the, out, the outworking, the doing of, of those things that we know are God's will. So you see, through all these passages, godliness is really a two-sided thing. 
ultimately it's something that God alone can do in us. It's something that only his hand has the power to work out in us. Only he can save us. Only God can produce fruit in our life. Only God can make us mature and transform us. But it doesn't mean that we sit back idly by and just hope that God someday zaps us. Our part is, as Paul says in Timothy 4, for Timothy 4, is to train ourselves in godliness, to prepare, to exercise, to work ourselves out spiritually so that we are uh, able, equipped, prepared, ready for that moment of testing. So how does this work in real life? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts of how I think this kind of works out in in everyday real life. Um, As with with an athlete, uh, for us, the real moment of godliness, the real test of godliness comes to us a moment in time when we are given the opportunity to choose right or wrong. And that choice can be either uh, some form of, of, of disobedience where we're, offer, where, where we're tempted to disobey God by, by doing what we know is wrong. So maybe, you know, something pops up on our computer screen that invites us to a website that we know is, is not appropriate, right? That is, is, that is sinful, right? And so we're tempted to do what we know is wrong. But sometimes the test comes in an opportunity to do what's right, where God is leading us and he's prompting us to follow him uh, to maybe share the gospel with somebody or to encourage somebody or um, to some act of obedience. So it can be positive things both ways. But either way, it comes down to a moment, right? A moment of testing. I don't know about you, but in my life, those moments of testing are never advertised in advance, right? Like, God doesn't come to me in, in a dream and say, Tim, next Thursday at 10 o'clock in the morning, a super beautiful knockout girl is going to come and she's going to try to seduce you. Right? First of all, I would know that um, that would be a dream because that's never happened in my life. I can't imagine why it would happen next Thursday, right? But, um, uh, but, but if it did happen, right, if it worked that way, I would have a lot of time to think about what's going to happen at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning. And I would have time to wrestle with, like, do I, do I give in to this temptation? Like, maybe this is a great opportunity and Satan certainly would be trying to convince me that, man, you're going to be, you're going to have joy and happiness because this this person's going to fulfill your dreams, right? But then uh, the, the the more spiritual and careful part of me would start thinking through the implications of what would happen after that, right? After I would indulge in that sin, what, what would be the consequences? And I would have time to weigh it all out, and I would start to think about how I'd have to explain this to my family and to the church and people who know me that I. I failed, right? I sinned. And how it would break my relationship. So I'd have time to wrestle all this out. And I would come to a place of decision where I would say, man, I'm locking myself in my room at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning, right? And I'm chaining my wife to me. And we're going to go on a date. And I'm going to invite all my friends. I'm going to make sure I'm protected so that uh, I won't give in to that temptation. But is that how temptation works? It never works that way for me, right? Temptation blindsides us, right? When we are least ready and least expecting it, boom, it is there. Right? In an instant. And, and what happens oftentimes in those instants, we are not ready and we fail. Right? We do not make the right decision. God promises, I want you to go share this Bible verse with so-and-so, but we, we tell ourselves, I'm too busy, I just can't have time right now for that, I'll do it later. Right? And the moment goes by, and later, whether it's you know the temptation to immorality or sin or whatever, or somebody says something, we just in a second we just shoot back with our mouth darts, right? And we we hurt people with our words because in that moment we we failed the test, right? And what happens afterwards? We feel guilty. We feel bad. Maybe we confess to that person. Maybe we pray to God and we get we confess our sins and we know Jesus forgives us and we praise God for His grace. But then, uh, you know, we think about, okay, next time this happens. And what's our strategy for avoiding it next time? Well, all too often my strategy has been, okay, next time when this happens, I'm going to try really hard, I'm going to try really hard to beat this, right? When that thing pops up on my screen, I'm going to try really hard to not click on that link, right? But uh, apply this logic to an athlete, okay? Just just imagine how this would work if, if you applied this logic to an athlete, 
who's going to run a marathon. And they get to the, the starting line, and they're got 26 miles ahead of them, and they're ready to run the late race, and the gun goes off, and he starts running, and he runs good for the first 500 meters. And then it dawns on him, I've never run more than a mile in my whole life. Right? And uh, the next 25 miles get really painful. And finally, at the end, he crawls across the finish line, and, you know, last place, horrible performance, you know, Everybody's gone home. It's dark. Um, and he's like, wow, that was horrible. That was horrible. And he says to himself, you know, next time, I'm just going to try harder. When I step up that starting line, man, I'm going to just really give it my all, and I'm going to try really hard. Right? Of course, that would be ridiculous, right? Because it doesn't matter how hard you try. If you haven't trained for the event, you're not going to be successful. Or imagine uh, you know, somebody who's a musician. And... Uh, they go and there's this beautiful 11-foot grand piano on this huge stage in an auditorium packed with thousands of people. And they sit down, and for the first time ever in their whole life, they see this amazing, you know, symphony in front of them. And first time ever, they try to play it, and it's horrible. And it just sounds it sounds horrible, right? And people are booing him off the stage, throwing rotten tomatoes at him, you know. And he says, "Oh man, next time I'm going to have a concert. I'm going to really try harder. I'm going to try harder." Okay? That would be foolish, right? What is required is not trying harder. What they need in both those cases is to what? Train harder. Or just train at all, right? Just train. Just prepare. You need to train harder. Well, that's what Paul's really talking about here. He says, you're being defeated. You're you're, you're letting these things distract you. You're getting yourself pulled away by false teaching and, and all this stuff because you are not training in godliness. And when the moment of testing comes, you are failing because you have never done anything to prepare. Right? And so he says, you need to train in God, God. Train. We need to prepare. We need to train. We need to strengthen ourselves so that when the moment of testing comes, we can actually pass the test and be victorious. Um, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says, look, it'll be worth it. And not only for the future, but for life here and now. If you want a life that's fruitful, that is filled with joy, that is being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ here and now, uh, the only way to see that accomplished in your life is through the exercise of spiritual disciplines, of training your life, and again, training's not the event, right? We don't do spiritual disciplines to be spiritually disciplined, right? But, but these are the steps, the means, the way that we will develop uh, Christ-likeness. Okay? Um, and we'll talk maybe some next week about what happened to the spiritual disciplines and how they got lost in history somewhere. Because um, the early church practices, Jesus practices, as we'll see in a minute. But what do we mean by spiritual disciplines? What are these practices that train ourselves for godliness? Um, uh, a guy named Donald Whitney, who's written a book on spiritual disciplines, defines it this way. The spiritual disciplines are those personal and interpersonal activities given by God in the Bible as the sufficient means believers in Jesus Christ are to use in the spirit-filled, gospel-driven pursuit of godliness. That is, closeness to Christ and conformity to Christ. By means of these Bible-based practices, we consciously place ourselves before God in anticipation of enjoying his presence and receiving his transforming grace. There's a ton of, that, ton of meaning in that statement, and I won't go through it all, but, but he says they are personal and interpersonal, so the disciplines are both private and corporate. Actually, listening to preaching is a form of spiritual discipline. And listening well, we actually hear the whole sermon to the very end. It takes a lot of discipline, especially you know, I'm not always that engaging. And so, you know, listening takes some work. We do it collectively as a body, corporately. So that's a corporate discipline. But it can also be personal and private, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, and, and it's things given in the Bible. So uh, there's a lot going on about spiritual disciplines now and a lot of interesting things that may or may not have value. And some, some of it may just be insane. Uh, but I won't, I won't name those things. If they're helpful for you, great. But there are things in Scripture, you know, there are things that the Bible talks about that we are to practice regularly if we're to uh, train ourselves in, in, in godliness. 
Um, and these things are sufficient. They are the sufficient means in a believer's life um, to, to bring them to a place of conformity to Christ. These, these Bible-based practices, uh, we, we place ourselves before God in anticipation of what God will do. Right? We're anticipating. We're not doing these things as a substitute for what only God can do, but we are putting ourselves in a place where we are anticipating God's work in our life. Um, so, so what are some of these? Uh, let me kind of wrap up with, with one. I'm going to only talk about one spiritual discipline uh, this morning, and we'll talk about some more next week. Um, and it is the spiritual discipline of, of being still. Of being still. Uh, and really being still uh, it encompasses this, the, the idea of silence and solitude and quieting ourselves. It's really... This whole idea of, of stopping all the distractions, right? of shutting out all of the distractions, whether electronic or digital or if they're otherwise, and being s- still before God. Now, why is this necessary? And, and, and again, let me emphasize, this, this, is, this is a training. Okay? There's nothing magic about silence and solitude. Right? And if... Uh, like, like there's monks I know who you know, go off and live in the jungle and have spent years without talking to anybody in absolute silence. Okay, that's kind of mostly pointless, really. <laughs> and that's not what I'm talking about here because the goal is not silence and solitude. And like, it's not some kind of like, badge of courage. Like, I'm more spiritual because I'm able to be in silence and solitude for 49 years and you can only do 10 minutes. Well, gee, no. okay, that's not the point, right? The point is this is something required to prepare us for relationship with God. Okay, we all know kind of one of the most basic, uh, often called disciplines, is Bible reading and prayer. Like, I don't really know of a, of a discipleship program or a place where you would tell a, a new follower of Jesus that they don't need to read the Bible and pray. That's kind of like 101, right? Basic. Uh, and, and, and we all know that, right? We all know we're supposed to read the Bible, right? We know that. And somehow we're supposed to pray. But the reality is, for most of us, Bible reading and prayer doesn't really work. Right? And I won't ask you to raise your hands. But if you're honest, how many of you would say, yeah, it doesn't really work? And the reason is we're not doing the things, the prerequisite things required for Bible reading and prayer to actually be meaningful. Why are we supposed to read our Bible and pray? Well, everybody knows it's to check it off your checklist, right? <laughs> well, no, actually, no, that's not it. Why do we read our Bible and pray? What is the point of it all? Well, God invites us into conversation with him. It's an amazing thing. Jesus died on the cross and saved us not only to forgive us of sin, as, as we looked at Hebrews, but to bring us into his presence, into relationship with him, to know him and to commune with him, to communicate with him and have a conversation with him. And that conversation is primarily through the word and prayer, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't do any of it without the filling of the Holy Spirit, but we go to the scripture to hear God speak to us. And, and the Holy Spirit can speak, but he primarily speaks through the word. And so if we're going to hear God, if we're going to be tuned in, if we're going to have this conversation where God is speaking to us, we need to read the Bible. And, uh, and for those of us who come from literate cultures where we can do that, it's a gift. Different for people who live in uh, illiterate uh, cultures, and they have other ways. But for us, we can read the Bible. And so engaging God in his word, that conversation is vitally important. The reality is a lot of people read the word day after day after day after day after day and it may be read through the Bible countless times and really rarely hear God speak to them. Again, I'm going to ask for hands, but is that you? Would you say that, yeah, I read through the Bible all the time, read it over and over and over and over again, but I could not on one hand count the times that I've heard God really speak to me in a powerful, life-gripping, life-changing way uh, through his word. Uh, why is that? Right? And then you go into the whole topic of prayer. Like how many of us prayer is like, like something we know we have to do and so we try it and it's mostly just like, like is it really conversation with God? Well, what's, what's wrong? Why is it prayer and, and Bible study don't work? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons and there's a lot to this. But one of the things is that we, we do not spend the adequate time preparing the soil, so to speak, or preparing our life, creating a space in our life, where conversation with God can really happen. And I believe that, that 
the, the prerequisite for real conversation with God in the Word and in prayer is uh, learning to be still. Okay? Uh, practicing silence and solitude. Uh, and this is not new. Jesus himself did this. And I'm telling you, if Jesus felt this was required, right? Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate, like, you know, God himself. Like, if Jesus thought this was necessary, how much more is it necessary for us? And repeatedly we find Jesus going off by himself, going off to the wilderness for 40 days and nights, going off early in the morning to a secluded place to pray while it was still dark, uh, going up in, in, into the mountain. And, you know, Jesus was constantly crushed by people. And, and he had a brilliant way, like his answering machine, like his way to get escape was to climb a mountain. Because what happens as you go up a mountain? It gets narrower and narrower and narrower, right? And pretty soon the path is a single track, and, and guess what? Like, like he just left everybody behind. He's a genius, right? Because he wanted solitude. Now, for a, long, for a long time, I thought Jesus wanted solitude because he was like me, a hermit who wanted to be a recluse who just didn't like people, right? That's, that's me sometimes, right? Uh, actually, that's not true of Jesus, right? Jesus didn't want solitude because he didn't like people. Uh, he came to lay down his life for his friends. Right? Jesus loves people. And, and it wasn't like Jesus was trying to escape the crowds all the time. He loved teaching them. He loved healing them and ministering to them. He loved it. He loved being with people. Right? But he knew that in order to be effective, to, for his life to bear fruit, for him to have the power to impact people's lives, he needed to get alone and converse with the Father. And to do that, he needed to be still. He needed space. He needed silence and solitude. And so Jesus tells his disciples when, he's, when they ask him uh, to teach them how to pray, he says this. He says in Matthew 6, 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word for room there is the idea of an inner chamber. Sometimes it's translated a closet. It's a private space where you close out all the distractions of the world where the exclusive focus is just God. He says, before you can pray, before you can say the right words or know what to say, it's important that you get to the right space and place. And that is this closet, this private inner room. And it's really, uh, Jesus is telling us here that, that for prayer to work, we need to practice the discipline of silence and solitude of creating a space in our lives where we have shut the door on all the distractions. Now, I don't know practically for you what that looks like. And sadly, um, you know, maybe you don't have like access to your own private mountaintop. Um, Chiang Mai is a noisy, noisy place. Sometimes your house can be a very noisy place. But uh, however you work it out, the essential absolute necessity you must come to grips with is that you need to find a place where you are alone where it is quiet and where you will not be distracted. And one of the one of the practical applications for this that we can all do is it means that when you go to, to be with God, like don't take your phone. Right? Uh, and like if you're one of those people who like you're reading your Bible on your phone, be honest. Okay, like here's and actually this is true for all of us. Be honest with yourself. When was the last? Well, how many times in the last week during your quiet time? Did you end up your quiet time on Facebook or checking email or on your phone? Right? And like, I know how this works. This is what happens for me. It's like, you know, I'm reading my Bible and I think, oh, you know, somebody messages me or some reminder pops up. And I think I'm going to go just check that one. I'm just going to message back real quick, right? I'm just going to check that one email. And I get on my phone and boom, there's 10 other reminders. And I, I, I don't even get to the first reminder because I'm looking at the second and third reminder and pretty soon I'm checking email and I'm on Facebook. And then, it's like those, those workers, you know, 23 minutes later, I'm like, oh yeah, what was I doing? Oh, I was praying. And I don't even know how I got immersed into cyberspace, right? Instead of Jesus space. So, um, be intentional, be diligent about going into that room and turning off all that junk. At all those distractions. Turn it off. Like maybe you need to actually read a paper Bible because maybe it will be less distracting. I, mean, I don't know, and I'm not telling you what to do. It's not a sin to read the Bible on your phone, 
I'm just saying, are you creating for yourself time and space that is distraction-free, where you're making it possible for you to have a conversation with God that is uninterrupted? Right? Jesus died on the cross to give us uninterrupted, unhindered access to the Father. Can we give him undistracted, uninterrupted attention when we come to him to converse with him in the word and in prayer? Um, but let me add to this, uh, or let me, let me throw up one, one final technique that kind of, I think, goes along with silence and solitude. And for me, the distractions are not only outside. Like, it's one thing to find that, that room, that closet, that space where you can turn off the phone and all the distractions and all the noise and get away from people and have time and space where you are just alone with God. But I don't know about you, but for me, being alone in that place, when I cl- close all those outside distractions, the next challenge for me is all the inside distractions. Right? And, and, uh, and, and actually, studies have shown that our, our phones have caused us to be even more distracted internally. And be honest, here, think about this. If you do turn off your phone and you, and you get rid of all that stuff so it's out of you, how, how long is it when you're alone and in quiet and solitude before there's this, there's, this, there's this impulse to reach for your phone, right? Oh, I'm just checking the time. I'm just checking the time, right? Oh, uh, oh yeah, no, no, no. And, and, like, and like nobody messages you and then you get worried. Why didn't somebody message me? Right? Oh, I think I, I think I had a reminder, right? And so, like, even when it's not there internally, we're wired. Actually, we we wired. We have conditioned ourselves to to grab for it, even when it's off. It's still calling us, right? So how do you um, how do you quiet those internal inside distractions? Uh, well, for me, something this may not work for you, but this has worked very well for me and it's something I've come to practice it's really helped me create silence and solitude and it's, uh, it's it may sound like meditation it's actually not meditation it's really just disciplined thinking uh, and what I mean by that is I take a Bible verse and, and in order to create this space this room this enclosed room both externally and internally uh, oftentimes my, my, my brain is going 10,000 directions and to make it work I need to focus my thinking I need to control, I need to take captive my out-of-control thoughts and these impulses. And so for me, something that's worked very helpful is to take a scripture verse, a very small, simple scripture verse, and begin my time with God by just reciting slowly those words over and over. Right? And um, we don't actually have time to practice it now, but, but try this at home. Uh, and, and, and here's the test, Okay. First, take uh, your stopwatch on your on your phone <laughs> okay, and set it for two minutes, right? And try and set your and start the start the, the timer and try to sit still and just um, let your mind focus on God for two minutes, right? And see what happens. See how long it takes before you're thinking about your phone or Facebook or friends or appointments or what's for lunch or when's Tim going to shut up or whatever, right? Um, it's hard. But try it a second time. And this time, take your timer for two minutes. And this time, take these words. And we're going to try it right now together. Uh, Psalm 46.10 is simply, Be still and know that I am God. Okay, say that after me. Be still and know that I am God. Okay, I want you to try, to, I want you to try this. We're going to practice for just real quick. Uh, we won't do two minutes. We'll just do one minute. Um, Close your eyes and, and just slowly say those words over and over again. And, th- and this is what happens. Uh, maybe you say it three times and poof, your brain takes off and you're, you're like you're in Africa somewhere, right? You're, you're, you're reliving last night's TV show or I don't know. Um, it's okay. Just rein it back in. Rein it back in and, and go back to that starting point. Be still and know I am God. Be still and know. I am God. Be still. Well, that reminds me of the. Da, 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 da. Oh, no, rein it, rein it back in. Be still. And know I am God. Let's try that for just 60 seconds.
Okay, there's 60 seconds. How did you do? Did anybody keep focused for a whole 60 seconds? Um, it takes practice. And for me, it took a lot of practice. But we need to learn to take captive our thoughts, to discipline our minds, to shut out the distractions, right? And the goal is to be able to get to where you can do this for 10 minutes without your brain shooting off in, in gazillion directions, right? And things happen in our brain. We start to rewire our brain so that those, those distractions are, are less loud. Right? And we're able to focus on the Word so that we can read the Bible, and we can hear God's voice, and we can pray um, with focus, with depth. Right? Mike, do you want to come pray for us? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.